Hey, before we get to today's podcast, I want to talk to you guys about some cool stuff we have added to our ActivePass membership in recent weeks. You guys have heard me talk about ActivePass here on the podcast. It is our digital membership. You can sign up by going to velonews.com forward slash ActivePass. Okay, so what have we added? It's a long list of stuff. Let me get to it. First of all, we've added the entire video archive of Warren Miller ski films. That's right. I believe it's 50 films spanning the decades. You can stream them all to your computer if you join ActivePass. What else have we added? Uh, Access to cool members-only digital content across Yoga Journal, Climbing Magazine, Clean Eating, Backpacker, Ski, Triathlete, Women's Running, and more. That's right, just like VeloNews.com, where we have our members-only content, you can get access to that type of content on all these websites. Uh, you can get members-only yoga and meditation challenges from Yoga Journal, as well as meal plans and recipes from Clean Eating and Vegetarian Times. Um, that's new. And you, in addition to getting access to the Warren Miller Video Library, you can get some tutorials from Ski Magazine and an entry ticket into the Warren Miller Film Tour coming up in 2021, as well as the Fly Fishing Film Tour. Uh, that goes along with the training plans, thousands of workouts from today's plan and oxygen, the exclusive access to bellnews.com content, the industry deals from brands like Scratch, Jordana, and others, and all of the line of the cool stuff we have on ActivePass. So again, you can learn more by going to velonews.com forward slash ActivePass and see the long and always expanding list of cool perks that you get access to by joining our membership. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on, yeah, you know, it's a busy Tuesday. Very busy Tuesday here at the home offices. A lot going on in the bike racing universe. Uh, Le Samian uh, just finished up in Belgium. Thrilling race. Matthew Vanderpoel looks like he was about to win the race. Attacks 3.5 k's to go. About to do it. And boom, snaps his handlebar off. And uh, whenever there's a mechanical calamity or something involving Matthew Vanderpoel, of course, we in the Villain News uh, or that have to hop to and get to spinning the stories. So you can read all sorts of great uh, analysis and opinion and insight into poor Matthew Vanderpool and his snap handlebar uh, on VeloNews.com right now. It seems like snapping a handlebar is kind of one of the only things out there that's going to slow that guy down. Like the, the list of things that will slow down Matthew Vanderpool, keep him from winning a bike race is short, but a uh, broken handlebar we can add to that. We got a great podcast coming up today because the racing season has completely roared to life and already we are swimming upstream just trying to keep tabs of all the cool pro bike racing going on right now. We are going to talk all about opening weekend that happened this weekend uh, with Omlu Pet Newsblad for both the men and the women and Kurna Brussels Kurna and probably some stuff from La Samyan. We're going to look ahead towards Strada Bianca and we're going to focus in probably a lot on what this means for Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Eric. Second half of the show, I am very pleased to have Mr. Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal come on. And Jason uh, has some deep thoughts and opinions on the Vanderpool versus Van Aert rivalry and how it can elevate cycling and how cycling should try really hard not to screw this one up. Um, Jason obviously writes about mainstream sports and he had some good context, you know, the history of good rivalries, Magic versus Bird. Bonin versus Cancellara, Federer versus Nadal, and how Vanderpool versus Van Aert could be right up there 
Um, you just have to, as a sport, not screw this one up. So really sick to get to that. But before we get to that, we have Andrew Hood and Jim Cotton on the line. Uh, Jim and Andy, like myself, spent this weekend neglecting our respective families and um, sneaking glimpses at the bike races. And uh, Jim, I'll start with you. Between the three big races, Omloop, Het Newsblad, men's and women's, and Kurna Brussels, Kurna, like what is your top moment from the from the weekend of racing? Got to be uh, Matthew Van der Poel just just going for it at eighty five k to go in uh, in Kuhn, Brussels, Kuhn. Uh So still two hours of racing to go. He just thinks, right, time to go now. Two hours of racing left, and just off he goes up the road, and that's the, that's the end of him until about three kilometers to go that was a good moment i was re- i was really psyched to see uh jonathan narvaez go up there with him too because i've never really thought of him as too much of a classics guy but the speed at which he was able to bridge across to vanderpool and really be vanderpool's equal for 60 kilometers or so uh was pretty impressive to me i you know as impressed as i was with vanderpool it's almost like ooh, keep an eye on ineos grenadiers they have some young guys who are who are looking pretty good how about you andy hood you were watching these races following the storylines what was your big moment from this weekend yeah looking at omloop it was just it was just something was missing in that race and i think it was either um you know while van Aert was not there vanderpool was not there uh i had an interesting conversation just this morning actually with heinrich hausler and he said there was just a hint of a pretty steady headwind on the last part of that race coming in and he said that you know you really noticed it when alaphilippe did jump at omloop that it just kind of snuffed the life out of any sort of real aggression to that race. We saw Omloop uh, finish in a bunch sprint, really, you know, a pretty pretty good-sized bunch sprint. I think about 45 riders in that front group. Rarely in that race do we see a bunch sprint. The last time a big group came in like that was, I think, 2009. So we're seeing, uh, you know, first first classics. But me, for me, the big takeaway really is the fact that we're racing, man. I mean, how good is all this stuff? It's like the classics – looking to be on schedule for the dates they're supposed to be on. We got vaccines coming down the pipeline. Teams got the bubbles working. Uh, you know, it's not going to be as bad as last year. That's what I'm most psyched about. Just picking up from what you said there about uh, Omloop uh, hoodie, it uh, also something that you kind of wrote about. It felt like in Omloop, it was just a real slow burn where sort of everybody was waiting for somebody to do something and there wasn't that one person to sort of spark it off, which perhaps could have been Walt Van Aert or Matthew Van Der Poel. But, you know, it was only really Alaphilippe with just sort of a, you know, a caution to the wind light attack that really sparked things off. The one thing I have been wondering, and, you know, whatever, it's a dumb hypothetical question, but it's something that I do in my spare time because I love to torture myself, is, you know, okay, Alaphilippe's attack goes, I think it was like 30, 35 Ks to go. And um, there was a small group that got away on the Mullenberg, which, you know, if you've ever ridden over there, you go from this big wide road onto the tiny steep Mullenberg. Groups always get away. Takuna Quick, Quick Step knows it's coming. They throttle it. They get Alaphilippe in the front group with, I believe, Zdenek Stibar. And I believe DeBallerini was up there, too. And then they go into the Berendries. And the Berendries is paved, but it's very steep. And that's where Alaphilippe went. And he went by himself and he's out there for, what, 10, 12, 15 Ks by himself and eventually gets brought back. And to me, that was the moment where if Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert had been in that race, 
they would have gone with him on the Berengaries because I don't see them missing the move on the Molenberg. Just like they both have, you know, great classics team. They know that it bunches up into the Molenberg. They know that you have to be in good position there. And so I don't. I I would see them also going. I don't see them sitting around and letting uh, uh, Philippe attack by himself on the Berengaries. And if you have Philippe and Vanderpool and Van Aert off the front with 30Ks to go, what does that remind us of? That reminds us of Flanders last year. I could have very easily seen um, a repeat of Flanders last year, hopefully without Alaphilippe hitting the deck with those three guys charging away. But like Andy said, you know, hey, there's a headwind, but B, it's just there's that little, well, there's that lack of firepower. And when you combine those things together, you get this dulled race that frankly is just easier for Dakuna Quickstep to control because the other talking point I think that has to come out of that race is just, you know, Dakuna Quickstep bossed that race around. They controlled the dynamics. They got that group away. They had the guys they wanted in that group. When Stebar crashes, you know, it changes the dynamic of the race. And so what do they do? Like they allow things to get glued back together and Ballerini's there for the sprint. So chapeau to them, but yeah, you know, you take two big horses out of the race and it just makes it uh, easier for Dakuna Quickstep to control. My question for you, for both of you, and I'll start with you, Andrew Hood. Afterwards, there were some comments from your man, Patrick Lefebvre, talking about how, oh, well, quick step, we have the strategy, we have the team strength to control Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert in these classics. What do you think about that? Do you think uh, Lefebvre is, like, do you think he's, he's right? Or... I don't know. What's your hot take there? Yeah, I think that's going to be the real tactical play of this of this Spring Classics campaign because you do have Wout and Matteo, who really are head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, everybody I've talked to in the last week or two are signaling those two guys as just at a whole nother level. But people are quick to add Alaphilippe to that equation. You know, last year we saw you know, Alaphilippe was there at Flanders before he had that freaky crash with a motorcycle. Um you know, and then, of course, uh, you know, Lefebvre, yesterday we talked to him in this, um, in this group call, media call. You know, the bad connection, I got the, I got the word wrong. You know, it, it, he goes, you know, we are the wolf pack. You know what wolves do? You know, we eviscerate our rivals. <laughs> but actually, I guess what he said was isolate. But, I, you know, I couldn't understand. I listened to it like 10 times. I thought he said eviscerate, but I guess it was isolate, which makes sense, too. You know, wolves do isolate their victims and then finish them off uh, one by one. So, uh, Lefebvre is saying that the quick step tactic is not going to change uh, despite the rise of uh, Vanderpool and Van Aert because, you know, they do this full court press. They have Alaphilippe, they got Stebar, they got Osgrin, they got all these different cards to play. And that's how they've been so successful, especially over the last 10 years. You know, it's all, it's all not just around one rider. Like today, we saw Vanderpool's uh, stem break or handlebars break, whatever it was. He's out of the frame. Whereas Quickstep has two or three other options waiting there in the wings, almost every scenario of every race. The thing I would say, just to, because I know better than Patrick Lefebvre, is that they've got the numbers, but I, I don't think Quickstep actually has one rider that's as strong as uh, Vanderpool. I mean, obviously there's Alaphilippe, but they're quite different kind of riders. I think if he wanted to, looking at him from the last week, Matthew could just ride Alaphilippe off his wheel if he if he really wanted to. So, yeah, it's that adage of you only win if you've got the strongest rider, not necessarily the strongest team. You know, Ballerini is looking really strong right now. He already has a couple wins right now. I don't know much about this guy. I know that he's young. He is Italian. He is 
you know, seem to be in the mold of the typical classics guy. Uh, Hoodie, what can you guy, what can you tell us a bit about Bellarini? I mean, do we think that he has the potential to star the Cobble Classics? I mean, I could see him do well at like again Wevelgan, but like, is he a bona fide Flanders or Roubaix guy? Yeah, I mean, he's really stepped up over the last couple of years. He's kind of part of this recruit recruitment program that Quickstep has. They're so effective at kind of tapping these young guys and some. Some play out and some don't, and, and Ballerini obviously is coming into the season just flying. Um, yeah, and I was talking today actually Heinrich Hausler on uh, Byron Victoria, victorious, whatever it is, Byron fourth place, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, Heinrich was saying that uh, he 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 definitely can be a factor in in any sort of group that comes in. You know, he's not going to win. You know, uh, going head to head against some of these heavy hitters, but. If it's a group of 10 or 15 coming in and there's the Kristoff is there and the Peterson is there, he could definitely be a factor to win in that kind of scenario. Um, another rider that's coming up that I'm really interested in watching uh, this spring, uh, Yomo Visma with David Decker, the son of ex-pro Eric Decker. He got two second places at UAE Tour. And I was talking to one of the sport directors at Yumbo. He's on the full Northern Classics program. He's a big, strapping, young Dutch rider, very fast. They're going to develop him as kind of like a sprinter, you know, it's a, a, a grand tour type sprinter, not a pure sprinter, but like a fast, big, strong guy that can win out of a hard stage. And then also that kind of a profile of winning some of these uh, classics, you know, a Shell Dupree or a Ken Velgevam where hard race, you know, a group of 15, 20 guys coming in, uh, he can win in that spread. So it's going to, I mean, I'm so psyched about this uh, spring classics program. I mean, uh, you know, Sagan, not racing, started Bianchi this weekend. He's supposed to come back for Chirino, uh, because they had that COVID case. Team saying uh, there was a relatively mild case of COVID. So we're hoping Sagan's back. You know, last year he missed the classes because he raced the Giro. So you got Vanderpool, uh, Van Aert, you've got uh, Sagan coming back, and you got Quick Step, and every team is coming in. Ineos is coming strong. So it's going to be just a fantastic next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, we must mention also that uh, in Omloop, and, and we'll move on from this after this, but Omloop, we did see the emergence of Tom Pidcock as a bona fide um, classics rider, too. He made the split on the Molenberg and then was really the strongest guy after Philippe on the Berendries. Couldn't quite go with Philippe on the Berendries, but rode strong in that front group and still had enough in the sprint to, I believe, he was third place, right? Um Jim, I mean, you are our resident Pidcockologist. Um, what did you see from uh, Tom Pidcock? Not just not just Tom Pidcock, but Ineos Grenadiers and what their potential is for the classics. Well, I guess it, they've got this like whole new young sort of generation of guys coming up that could really flourish into kind of strong classics units. So there's obviously the Pidcock who, as you said, in Omloop, he's just got this real attacking sort of clout like, like Wout and Matthew from... Vanderpool from, I guess, from a cyclocross kind of thing. But also, he seems to have, for a 21-year-old kid, like, kind of an intelligence. Like, in Kern, he was able to sit back, let all these rulers take the big pulls in when he was in one of the chase groups, and then just out-sprinted them all at the end. And then there's this uh, Navajas guy who could, like you said, could match Vanderpool uh, in over 60k. And then Away from that, and more in the future, you've got guys like Felipe Gana, who, I mean, he's focusing on the Olympics this year, but I think uh, next year he's he's looking at the Cobble Classics. Then you've got, you know, Gianni uh, Moscon, and you've got the slightly older guys like Luke Rowe, who's still solid 
cobbles contenders. And there's, I think there's other teams out there that could do something this season in the classics, but just ha- haven't quite got it together yet. Like Trek won in Kern, but in Omloop they were missing. Then you got guys like UAE, uh, Team Emirates. So Trentin was looking good, but Christoph was absent. So I think there's, there could be more to this classic season than just Walt Van Aert and Matthew Van Der Poel. Yeah. And uh, fan favorite, Gianni Muscone, of course, uh, went on the attack over the mirror. And I'm, uh, how, how not excited were you guys uh, at the prospect of having to write a Gianni Muscone wins on the Head News Plan story when he went? I was, quietly psyched when the peloton brought him back yeah i was writing the uh, race report for that and i was it was kind of going through my mind as as he went off on the attack over the moor i was like mm, how am i how am i gonna angle this but yeah he only lasted a few k so that's <gasps> uh guys I, I i also sat down i did not watch this live but I, I went back and watched the replay over and over again of the women's omnipotent and the more times that i watched it the more times i was just I was delighted, but also, I wouldn't say troubled, but delighted to see the complete, utter dominance of the race by Team SD Works, of course, formerly Bulls Dolmans. I actually felt like SD Works' domination of the women's race was more complete than Quick Step's domination of the men's race because, you know, and, and it's tough, like, they picked up the action with the broadcast with about 40 Ks to go, and by that point, the big front group had already been established and Lizzie Dynan was not there and Annemiek van Vluten was not there, which what what the heck happened? I mean, we need to figure out and find out what the, the hell happened uh, beforehand so that they weren't there. Van Vluten said she had bad positioning, which kept her out of the race. I She's the strongest rider of the last five years. I don't know how that happens exactly. But SD Works had, I believe, six people in this front group, five or six riders in this front group of 35. And from there, they just lost the peloton you know chasing down breaks Vanderbregen chasing down breaks herself uh at some point they get demi fullering uh in a solo move which takes the pressure off and forces live to try and chase and you know there was a moment where demi fullering goes on her uh, initial attack and live sent a rider up to her and she almost got there it was on the boundaries and Vanderbregen herself goes and chases down the live rider and is just like I know that we have the numbers. I know I'm the strongest rider here and I am going to personally shut down these moves. And it paid off because after the battle over the mirror, um, as they came into the uh, Bosberg, um, you know, Vanderbregen went and no one else could go with her. And so when I think about that victory, it's like, yeah, okay. Vanderbregen is very strong. And she obviously was probably the strongest rider in the race, but the way that that team, I mean, it was like, they kind of toyed, with the other teams. It was like a cat playing with a toy or something like that. It was, I don't know, Jim, I mean, I know you watched it too. To me, it was very, it was thorough domination. Yeah. They just, they just swarmed it really. It's, it's like they've got the sort of the, the all-star team that they've got the strongest like individual, probably they've got the strongest domestic, like Amy Peters just seems like, you know, Tim DeClerc cross with someone else. He's good at being a domestic in the men's field. And, They've just got the complete package all through and they seem to, because most of them have been together so long as well, they, they just know what each other are doing. It's like quick step twice with Vanderpool on top, really. And I, I don't really know what pe- what other teams are going to do in response um, in the coming races. I do think uh, Omni Trek just 
had a bad day. I think I read Lizzie Dynan's. She just said she just didn't have the legs. And Ellen Van Dyke, she was kind of missing as well. And Live Racing, they're looking like they could challenge, but it is going to be everybody against SD Works this season by the look, just looking at Le Samin and Omloop. Yeah, and as as happy, you know, as psyched as I was to see her win, it did kind of bum me out because I do remember, you know, 2016, 2017, women's racing was thrilling and great action, but, you know, Bulls Dillman's was winning everything and controlling the races thoroughly. And this, one of the big storylines in women's racing since that point has been the emergence of these other squads and not just having star riders on them, but being having the team depth and the team strength to be able to dictate the race. And like last year, it's like Trek got to the same level as Bull Dolmans and was able to dictate these races. And they added some sprinters this year. And it was like, oh man, I cannot wait to see this well-rounded Trek squad take on Bull Dolmans. I can't wait to see, you know, Bike Exchange having, you know, elevated these other riders and sort of this more well-rounded approach taking on them and Movistar with Annemiek van Vluten coming into the 4-2. And so to see the opening race be so thoroughly um, handled by SD Works, I, you know, it's a storyline I'm going to continue to, w- to watch and see, but you know, I, my hope is that things are a little bit more well-rounded as we head into Strada Bianchi and the rest of the season. Um, Kerna, Brussels, Kerna, I mean, you know, the big storyline there, yeah, is, is Vanderpool and his big breakaway hoodie. Why, why do you think he did that? 80Ks out, kind of a, you know, it's a long bomb. It's the chances of winning from that level aren't great. Was this... A training move, an effort in the legs move. Like, what's your read on Vanderpool going from that far out? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, anybody else, it's a suicide move, right? I mean, those guys that were up the road already, you know, was one of those kinds of breakaways that were there just to get the TV time. But then here comes uh, Vanderpool, you know, what, 80, 85Ks out. You know, those those are like just epic moves that only the, the giants of the Peloton can realistically even do. And, and hold off. Uh, I mean, part of it was, I think, uh, you know, maybe Vanderpool was just bored, right? I mean, he's been racing cyclocross for the last two or three months, and he's probably not used to sitting in the bunch and just whipping around uh, the Belgian countryside. So part of it was like, I got the legs, I'm going to go. And, you know, when you, ta- when you heard his comments after the race, he was hoping a, 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 a Van Avermaet or somebody was going to come across and join him and, uh, you know, really take the race to the line. And he said he would kind of admit he was in a quandary there, you know, where obviously the, the chase was coming. You know, they kind of dangled out there for quite a bit longer than expected. But, you know, he was like, you know, do I sit up? I mean, you know, do I wait for the group to come up to me? Do I go? Do I attack the group? You know, he was kind of like waiting for somebody to respond to him. And no one did. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, uh, also comes down to experience, right? It's like, uh, you know, I think a lot of these teams maybe are afraid of going into the red. They know that if they follow Vanderpool, they might not have the legs. You know, they might have the legs to go to the line with them. They're not going to beat them if they go with them for 80Ks. So I think it was, uh, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, some interesting tactics in this spring classics because, you know, teams would be saying, well, yeah, Vanderpool and Van Aert are going to attack from long distance. But, you know, if we have two teams working to reel them in, we can catch them and come over the top. So I think we're starting starting to see some of that play out already in these first couple of races. I think I think there was some element for Vanderpool as well that he just had nothing to lose because he'd been hoping to have a week of UAE tour in his leg before Strada Bianchi and he got one race and you know even if he's out on his own for 50k an hour 
on his own, putting in a solid effort. It's, it's all good training. And if he gets brought back, I, I believe he was working, he was planning to lead out um, the guy that won the Samin, um, Tim Malia. So he sort of had, had nothing to lose. And like you said, Andy, if nobody went with him, then he could ride to the end, to the line. I felt like I saw uh, multiple um, multiple expressions of that type of riding, especially during Kornobrosa's corner. You know, Amlo Petnusblad is a world tour race. He was very conservative. You know, Quickstep was really trying to win. That's the storyline there. With KBK, you know, it's a lower level race. I, I felt like, you know, it's kind of like when they talk about when you see a musician um, who's like, or a band, and they're like playing like a midweek gig in a small town. I went to school in Santa Cruz, California. We'd always get these like midweek gigs from bands on their way up to San Francisco. And like, sometimes they'd be trying new stuff out, or they'd be like wasted, or just they'd be like experimenting, you know, and trying new stuff out. And I felt like I saw some of that with KBK from guys like Matteo Trentin and Kaspar Askreen and, um, Oh, who's your man on Bahrain, Victorious, uh, the Belgian guy, uh, yeah, whatever. He, you know, people were putting in really, really hard efforts in the group that weren't really going anywhere. But it was like, are you putting in this huge monster effort right now for the sake of putting in a huge monster effort? And, you know, the announcers kept talking about how, ah, it's such a weird season. Normally, these guys would already have, like, Volta Algarve and um, Tour Down Under and a few different big, hard blocks of racing in their legs. And I just kept thinking of it about that as I saw these guys like just just punishing themselves on the front of this group really for dubious sort of tactical purposes. It was like, ah, are you all just using KBK right now as this like huge, almost like Strava suffer fest or like a Zwift race? Like you're all cramming for the exam, man. The big tests are coming up and like nobody has had that like one week of like hard, hard, hard efforts. And so everyone's doing it now. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the classics because, you know, we are going to come into the classics and these these guys will have had um, varying levels of racing and varying levels of fitness. And so um, I don't, you know, as much as this year represents a return to somewhat of the norm, it's still not entirely the norm. There's still kind of some out-of-the-box stuff going on this year. And I think this weekend at Strata Bianca, we're going to be seeing even more of that. Um so, of course, this weekend, this is it. The Vanderpool-Van Aert rivalry heats up again. I mean, Andy, what are you expecting to see at Strada Bianca? Yeah, there's even some talk that it might be uh, slushy, wet Strada Bianca. We'll see if the weather uh, stays bad. There's some forecast for rain, which kind of added a little wrinkle to the race. I was talking to a Yumbo Visma <clears throat> sport director today, Arthur. Uh, Arthur, We'll call him Arthur for right now. I forgot his last name. Um, but he was saying, you know, that... Uh, that uh, Wowd has been up on the top of the Taide uh, volcano in Tenerife, and the team has really embraced the altitude preparation for the Spring Classics. You know, some teams have really, uh, you know, kind of put their arms around that. Uh, Sagan has done a lot of altitude training. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Sky Ineos, they tried it with some of their Classics riders. They felt that it backfired a little bit. Um, but Wout is going to just basically parachute in Saturday, they're flying in uh, to the to Italy tomorrow. They'll do a recon on Thursday, uh, spin the legs on Friday, and race Saturday. You know his first road race since since I think he raced uh, at Flanders last fall. And uh, you know, man, the hype factor is just going to go off the charts, right? You got uh, Strada Bianca, you got all the big teams. You know, it's kind of almost 
the sixth monument, really, that race. You know, the distance isn't quite there or, or the history isn't there to make it a true monument. But, you know, it, it's right there for prestige for all the big teams. And, uh, you know, Wout is defending champion and, and Vanderpool is coming in to be the usurper. And you got every team trying to win. So it's going to be uh, a good day to call in sick if you have to work on Saturday. I think, I, well, I'm not sure what I'm expecting, but I'm just fascinated to see, yeah, Wout versus Matthew Vanderpool. Um with Pidcock and Alain Philippe as well, because they all bring a, a slightly different sort of racing style. I think, like you know, Alain Philippe's just this panache sort of swashbuckling guy. Pidcock, kind of similar to Alain Philippe in that he just seems to go on instincts. Wow, is just a huge kind of motor that can ride people off his wheel. And if he's just been riding up and down mountains for the last two weeks, he'll probably be even better. And and Matthew is just looked completely irresistible in the last kind of 10 days when I was watching the uh, Kern Brussels Kern uh, coverage on uh, Eurosport it was Adam Blythe commentating and he he, uh, used to ride a lot of classics not that long ago and he was just like I just can't believe what I'm seeing like this guy's confidence is just huge like you know he must just have complete self-belief and um, just seeing how these four interact with each other and hopefully they're all up at the pointy end of the race it will just be an amazing spectacle so yeah i hope it lives up to the hype yeah i'm expecting to see almost like the field versus matthew and wout you know dakunic quick step leading the team charge as almost like the field tries to take on these two strong men and uh, what that what that means i mean i do feel like we're entering this new era of like Cancellara versus Bonin with these two guys. And yeah, there's other players in there who are super strong, but like this, you know, big rivalry that's going to generate a ton of attention, lift all ships. And like, we're going to this year really determine, figure out where the nuances are between these two guys, you know, um, with Bonin and Cancellara, it was always very easy. It was like, Bonin is the sprinter. Cancellara is the long range missile power guy. He's, you know, he's the TT guy. Bonin is the sprinter. And with these two, it's like they're both really good on dirt. They're both good time trialists. They both have a very good sprint. I'd say that maybe Wout is a bit more of the like sledgehammer guy and Vanderpool is a little bit more of the finesse. But I think the next block of racing, if these guys stay healthy and go mano a mano, we're going to see the subtle differences between them in the races. And that's just really effing exciting to me. Um, Andrew Hood and Jim Cotton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are now going to hear from Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal all about uh, the Vanderpool Van Art rivalry. The Matthew Vanderpool versus Wout Van Art rivalry. The best rivalry, not just in cycling, but the best rivalry in all of sports. Our next guest, um, second or third time caller, he is going to make the point. And other points that uh, Wout versus Matthew is right up there with some of the best rivalries going on in mainstream sports. It's the Wall Street Journal's Jason Gay. Hey, Jason. (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so psyched for you to be here to talk about Matthew versus Wout. Oh, listen, I can't believe like they must have loosened the restrictions where because you have the studio audience now and I heard applause. That's amazing. I'm glad things are getting back to normal where you are. Well, I'm sure you saw the uh, the news that, you know, Outside Magazine, the purchase and the acquisition. Oh, yeah. With that, we brought yep. over like, yeah, this huge stu- – listeners should take note. I'm in a huge studio. There's cameras everywhere. 
uh, Bob Barker was introing me. Uh, no, no, this is still the home office. I have it. it there's dirty laundry uh, in the corner and skis in the other corner. And it, this is very uh, low, lo-fi recording today. What does this whole thing mean for you? Are you now like outside Fred? Do you have to go to like Santa Fe now and hang out with those long form blowhards from outside and they sit there and talk about their like 10,000 word articles about Victoria Falls and blah, blah, blah? What's the deal? God, I hope so. I love Santa Fe. Every time my wife and I go down there, we have like our circuit where we go to Meow Wolf. Have you heard of Meow Wolf? I don't know what Meow Wolf is. It's, no. a, it's a bowling alley that's been turned into an interactive art exhibit that's amazing. I, I should add that I'm joking i i have great feeling and uh, appreciation for outside outside sent me to rwanda many years ago to go mountain biking with tom ritchie you know what's not to love about outside it's a iconic important magazine so i hope it all works out for everybody maybe not you fred but i hope it works out for the company fingers crossed outside yeah special place in my heart too as a freshman in college i had a shoulder injury on the swim team and i could not swim and i would spend my afternoons pedaling a stationary bicycle reading dog ear copies of Outside Magazine. And it was those uh, halcyon days that uh, convinced me to take an intro to journalism writing class, join the school paper. Let that be a lesson to all you youngsters out there. Back in Fred's day, yep. they didn't have any sort of AR, Zwift, VR experience, all of that. People were on the trainer flipping through magazines, print copy. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, there was no Twitter, no Facebook. No Instagram to just stare at, mindlessly stare at, and get outraged about things. It was was it a penny farthing on like a like a, like a stationary wind trainer? <laughs> it may as well have been. Oh my gosh! And yet it doesn't seem like that long ago. But enough with my boring, lame background of journalism and cycling, Jason. I want to get to this column that you wrote a few weeks ago, right uh, after Cyclocross Worlds, where you made. The point, you made the argument that Wout versus Matthews right up there with some of the best rivalries, not just in cycling, but in all of sport. And I, first of all, I need to ask you, what was the response from the dedicated Wall Street Journal readers out there when you are bringing up two guys from the low countries who no one's ever heard of and you are elevating them alongside like Jordan and LeBron, Rory McIlwain and Jordan Spieth? Like what, what type of response did you get? You know, it was a fantastic response, I have to say. And I will tell you that I wanted to do that story immediately once I saw the photos of them going over the beach. You know, when I saw those ocean, uh, rather the English Channel waves in the background crashing down upon the spokes, I said, you know, that is one of the most magical sports photos I've seen in a long, long time. Let's get that in the paper and I can just throw some words on the page and make it happen. But uh, the response was fantastic. You know, you got the bike crowd that is just shocked that to see this in a mainstream-ish newspaper. Uh, but on the other hand, you see people who may not know the first thing about cyclocross, you know, warm to it and ask questions about it. A lot of people, like, pointing out, like, hey, Fayetteville's coming. You know, it's going to have worlds here in the United States pretty soon. That's pretty sp fantastic. But, you know, it, it, it comes in a – the nice thing about worlds is it happens in sort of a dead spot of the calendar. I think it's the week before the Super Bowl. Um, I don't want to write the 9,000th story about Tom Brady. And you and I have had this conversation before, but it's bizarre. But if you write about something that's considered quote unquote niche, and I, you know, it's like across the world is pretty niche, I guess, in the context of, you know, North American sports, um, you get love. You know, you get a readership and like the actual numbers back it up. We get all that digital information about how many people read stuff. And it's easily one of the top two or three stories I've read, written so far in 2021 in terms of just clicks because people pass it on. They're like, I can't believe they wrote about this. Or did you see this picture? I mean, it's nothing about what I wrote specifically. It's just more about the affirmation people who love a sport feel when they see it covered in a, in a 
you know, different kind of platform. Well, you definitely hit the nail on the head with the numbers and the readership because, I mean, you know, I think readers can probably assume by looking at the high volume, the regular churn of Matthew Vanderpool and Walt Van Aert stories on our website that, yeah, people are very interested in these two guys. They're stars. They Within this cycling world, they generate an amazing gravity, an amazing amount of interest and traffic. And, you know, I think that if either one of these guys had come come along by themselves, like they would be a big name. You know, they would obviously be a big name and win big races and whatever. But, you know, you hit it on the, you hit it again. It's because they're the same age, because they've been battling with each other since they were literally children. I mean, there are these great photos on the internet of like baby-faced Wout, frowny baby-faced Wout and, you know, smiley baby-faced Matthew after some junior worlds that gives it this extra clout. And and I'm with you, man. I like after, you know, covering this sport full-time, since 2004, like, boy, the power that a good rivalry can have in lifting up the sport. We saw that with Bonin and Cancellara. And we haven't always seen that at the Tour de France level. And so I'm really excited about these guys, especially the fact that focusing on the classics, like being the rising tide that lifts all ships. You know, and that's what this is all about. It's an opportunity. And I, and I want to get into like whether or not cycling will make the most of it because what they're getting right now is something magical. It is the one plus one equals three thing. Whereas you're absolutely right. Cycling, you know, has had individual stars in the past, dominant stars. Very recently, we saw Peter Sagan come in and just be an incredible talent, an all-arounder, a very charismatic rider, but he didn't have that kind of like, you know, mano-to-mano kind of relationship with one other rival. Um, I having these two individuals, and, and I think with both of these riders, if you're one of these cranky old farts around cycling who has been sitting around saying, like, the sport has gotten too analytic, it's too dull, um, it's uh, people are carrying their schedules, they're being too careful, it's too cautious, there's no romance, there's no panache, this is for you, this rivalry, these two individuals, these are guys who are riding, racing, competing, uh, basically 11 and a half months out of the year. Uh, they will get up and ride in any weather on any surface. They have talent uh, it, that just transcends not just uh, the the discipline, but the sport. I mean, they're able to do it all. And the fact that they are quite evenly matched is this magical thing that sports very rarely get the opportunity to use. And you saw it in basketball a generation ago with like something like Magic and Bird, okay? Now, I yes, I did. I compared this to Magic and Bird, or I'll compare more recently to LeBron and Curry. Or in tennis, you've had, you know, Chrissy and Martina, or more recently, uh, Nadal and Federer. And, and where you have sort of this incredibly charismatic pair of athletes who trade wins, um, but also become an argument. And a fun kind of argument, right? Because it's not just like, oh, well, this person has dominated the sport. Wow, that's kind of interesting. It's, I like this person, and I like, you know, I'm this, I'm a fan of this rider. I like this rider, and here's why I think this one is superior. And it becomes kind of this thing which I think can lift a sport beyond the sort of base, you know, the the, the traditional fan base into something bigger because. People are going to be compelled to check it out. What's all this fuss about? Why is somebody saying this guy is the best and the other one is not the best? You know, like all that kind of stuff I think is really, really special. And I, I, I'm, I'm, op- I'm hopeful, but I have some skepticism that cycling has the tools to try to get the most out of this. You know, I mean, I think both of us know enough about the sort of broad arrangement of the sport to be concerned that 
you don't want this to sort of go through your fingers and lose like, you know, if we're lucky, we get three, four, five, six years of this being a spectacular mono a mono rivalry. I hope that cycling has its act together enough to really make it, you know, uh, you know, exploit it for all it's worth. Yeah, you hope that like the UCI doesn't ban rivalries or something like that. They're like, oh, we have decided that uh, your socks are too high, your arrow tucking, and rivalries are now uh, no now banned. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, that. I am concerned about it. And I just, uh, just an outright ban on rivalries. But I'm also just concerned about the general, like, inertia that exists around the sport where, like, we did it this way last year, so let's do it this way this year. We did it 10 years ago this way, so let's do it the same again. And, like, you know, not sort of singling out, like, specific things, individuals and making it bigger. I could tell you, like, you know, for example, with basketball, you know, when David Stern became the, um, commissioner of the NBA, he very nakedly, you know, embraced the sort of celebrification of the sport, the idea that one individual could be extracted above the team and sort of put on the marquee as like magic bird watch tonight. And like, yes, you're going to have a chorus of people being like, it's the Lakers and the Celtics. It's not these two guys going at it. But if you want to captivate that, you know, fan, that casual person who isn't necessarily watching and hanging on every word of the sport, that's a way to bring them in. And I think that other sports have borrowed that. You see it in football now where we have like, you know, Brady versus Breeze or before that it was Brady versus Manning. I mean, football is even more absurd because quarterbacks aren't really playing against quarterbacks. It's not really a real rivalry in the athletic sense, but it is an incredible marketing tool. And I just feel like, you know, cycling institutionally has a habit of stepping on its own rakes and not really like you know, <laughs> seizing the moment and turning it into something that it should be. And that will involve really sort of being aggressive in terms of introducing these riders to the public, making sure that the media has every opportunity to cover them and just, you know, increasing, you know, visibility and accessibility to these people because they're special. They really are. And, 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 and you know, I mentioned the sort of old fogey aspect of the way that they ride, the fact that they're like, you know, they just get out there and get it, clip it and rip it. That's also a really fun thing for the casual fan, too. You know, it's a lot harder to explain, like, Team Sky's, you know, wandering into the mountains than it is to just, like, this is a rider who's just aggressive at any moment. You know, that's a really fun thing to introduce to a casual fan. So, I, you know, this is a real moment for the sport. And there are reasons to be skeptical, but uh, I, I am choosing to be cautiously hopeful. A couple things. Yeah, look, 100% hit the nail on the head. The fact that these guys grip it and rip it and are so strong and so talented that they have the ability to win almost any type of race is really what elevates it. You know, think back to the early days of Peter Sagan and how big of a unicorn he was because he could win bunch sprints, he could win from breakaways, he could even win stage races, he won the Tour of California. So that was sort of the first thing that elevated him. People like, wow, this guy is so special. And I give a ton of credit to Peter Sagan himself for then being the like, wheelie, long hair, joy of cycling, telling jokes type of guy who drove the drove his personality down our throats, for lack of a better word, for a few years. But really, it was like cycling didn't do that. Okay, the brands kind of helped out, but like the Tour de France didn't really do that. You know, UCI definitely didn't do that. It was like sort of this force of nature of Peter Sagan to elevate himself to that next level. And I, when I look at Wout versus Matthew, like they already have the cycling part in place where it's like they're so versatile. Both of them are little mini Peter Sagans in terms of their versatility. You know, Wout Van Aert can win time trials. He can win hilly classics. He can win bunch sprints. Matthew Vanderpool, he like, you know, wins these classics. He wins stage races. 
he can win mountain bike world cups, which is insane. I mean, when you think about how good Nino Scherter was on the mountain bike work world cup and this guy like steps up to the plate and beats him. So they have this versatility part covered. I think now we're at the point where it's like, we need to start drilling down into some personality with them. Okay. I hear you. And you know, I saw him interestingly, like he's not somebody who like came out with some sort of like media management approach. I mean, I think as he got more famous, there are people around who, you know, they put together business and obviously he was one of the highest earning riders on the tour is one of the highest earning riders on the tour, but he just had this kind of natural like surfer charisma. I think, you know, I think that the California aspect of it, you mentioned the tour of California. I think that was sort of an integral part of the Sagan story was the fact that he was in America for a week every year, you know, being cool, being California cool. He loved uh, what this place was about and, um, you know, still trains there, still has a lot of friends there. Um, the other part of his narrative, which I think is interesting, is that he was second place for a really long time, right? We were talking about whether or not he'd get over the hump, and then he did, and then he just, you know, it was kind of downhill from there. Um, I I agree with you that, you know, there's a moment here for, you know, Wout and for MVP to get to a place where they are, uh, their personalities shine. But I think that the beautiful thing about a rivalry is that it takes on a personality unto itself and the best ones have degrees of contrast and i think one thing that'll be interesting to see is if you have this you know there's that there's that um phrase in cycling i mean a phrase in boxing rather a phrase in boxing called styles make fights that like a great boxing match is when two people have different philosophies and approaches to fighting and you see the merits of the, the, the limitations of both the same applies to tennis rafa and roger get lumped together, but they are wildly different tennis players. Uh, Federer is a much more balletic um, type of tennis player. He sort of is almost kind of like an artist. Nadal is this physical tornado um, who, you know, just will wear you down. Um, and, and and cycling, obviously, because you have sort of a fixed thing that you're riding upon, it's a little different to sort of see, like, well, how they're, you know, what the stylistic differences are between the two of them. But now, there's obviously a size difference between these two riders. Um, there are hints of, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, bad feelings or anything like that. But, they, you know, they're competitive with each other. You know, they're not like, you know, they're deeply respectful of each other. But, like, I think they both want to beat each other. And that's a really good thing. And that's something to, like, grab at. Um, and then it begins the question of how much they want it. And one of the things that's, like, challenging, and this is similar to what exists with, you know, what we talked about with the structure of pro cycling organizationally is that they're also in teams right and so like you know Wout's on Jumbo Visma with a whole bunch of really really talented riders who are also eager for their turn in the spotlight and deserve it and how does Jumbo sort of manage that like can they put one guy ahead of the rest I would argue you should like that probably would be the best thing for the sport probably the best thing for your team and your sponsors but I, that's not the way the sport tends to work. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out too. Yeah, and especially in sort of, I wouldn't say the old school, but, you know, more traditional thinking within like Belgian and Dutch society, which is like, you know, I mean, I interview Dutch cyclists every week and like they're all, I wouldn't say the same, but like there is this attitude of like, hey, like play it down. It's about the team. It was a team effort. Like nothing flashy, nothing glitzy. This is about doing hard work and playing the game and, you know, sort of, I mean, almost like a traditional old like baseball player type attitude of like, hey, just lace up my shoes, like put my pants on one leg at a time like everyone else. Yeah, right. And listen, that's not, you know, these 
two are never going to turn into like Conor McGregor. And I guess we should be like grateful for that. But like they have a wildly eccentric style of riding. I mean, you look at, you know, Vanderpool the other day going out and taking a flyer from what he was 83K out. Like <laughs> not the kind of like classic 21st century, highly analytic cycling move, but incredibly fun to watch and like completely animated an early season race and made it much more fun. The way that he won Amstel a bunch a couple of years ago, which was just one of the most cuckoo victories anyone's ever seen where they, you know, came from behind and just ripped through it. Um, uh, you know, the charisma can come from the approach to riding, the way that they win, the way that they do it, the way that they lose. You know, I think that's an important part of cycling too, right? It's like you can lose beautifully too. Um, and the old heads love that as well. So I, you know, like, you know, there will be degrees of media training. There will be aspects of it, like where they try to like commercialize them. But, you know, like there's going to be limitations to that. I don't think all of a sudden they're going to turn into like, you know, incredibly colorful interviews and quotes. The last great cycling rivalry, especially in classic cycling that we had, you know, we are still living in the, the long shadow cast by Tom Bodin versus Fabian Cancellara. And yeah, when I think about what really made that rivalry work was there were the two different styles that were very distinct. You knew in the race that if it was going to be a long breakaway, by and large, it was going to be Fabian Cancellara. That's how he was going to have to win. Where if Tom Bonin was strong enough to match Fabian Cancellara, he was going to have to stick with him to the end and unleash this sprint because he you know, had a background in, in track sprinting and, and that was sort of his trump card. And so I remember watching the big battles, the years when they were both healthy because there were a number of years where like one guy would have an injury. So you just kind of knew, OK, it's Tom Bonin's year. Fabian has a knee injury or whatever. But the years when they really went up against each other, they produced these epic moments. You know, Cancellara 2010 on the uh, Mir van Garagebergen where he like – Pops Bonin, you know, Bonin when he stays with Cancellara in 2008, I believe, into the Roubaix Velodrome and sprints past him. And so I think that's one of the tough parts about watching Wout and Matthew Vanderpool is that, look, they are very distinct riders and different riders, but like both of them have a really good sprint. Both of them can go long and time trial. Uh, both of them like seemingly have the full, like the full bag of skills at this young age. And so as this rivalry progresses, I do think it will be interesting to see how they try to beat one another. I mean, Flanders last year is the ultimate uh, case where it's like it's those two by themselves on these empty bergs, Paderberg, Oudquermont, like no one is there. And it's just like pedal stroke for pedal stroke, making it look easy, like climbing the Paderberg and making it so easy and it coming down to a sprint and Wout getting beat by, you know, millimeters. And so I wonder if we see scenarios like this in the classics to come, like, are they going to, you know, someone's going to have to try something different. And I think that will add some more depth to this rivalry as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I want to be very respectful to Fabian and to Bowden, who are generational talents. But there's even more here with this new rivalry. We consider the versatility these two have. And, you know, coming off of a cyclocross season where it was just Ali Frazier week to week, boom, boom, boom. And now they're heading into classics. There has not been a comparable to this. In women's cycling, you see it a good deal. I mean, a writer like Marianne Vos was multidisciplined and spectacular for a very, very long time. But in men's cycling, this is unique. And, and, and especially when you consider that they will be also people to watch in grand tour season, you know, to be able to win single stages and sprints and so on. And like, they pop off the screen. If you watched, um, Vanderpool, that, what was the, he won a sprint uh, before they got, uh, <laughs> quarantined out of the UAE event. Uh, um, yeah, stage one. 
it looked like Rob Gronkowski coming out of the pack. It really was kind of amazing to watch. I mean, it's like one of these things is not like the others. And to just watch him like skate away, early season race, of course, but you know, he's super fit and ready to go. Um, I just think that there's just enormous opportunity for both of these uh, athletes. And I, and I, and I want to also like say that, like, I think that you'll see, um, the sport appreciate, hopefully what they're going to getting out of athletes with variable talent like or with a diverse set of talent. Like I feel like they're sort of perfectly situated to where cycling is now, which is after this year that we've had, where basically there was no competition except at the elite world tour level. Um, everyone kind of had to go off to themselves and they learned something about themselves as cyclists. They were people, they were, you know, like I'm into off road riding now. I want to do more gravel. I want to spend more time on the road. I can put in the mileage. I did this, you know, everyone kind of had an interesting internal uh, experience as a cyclist this year. People rode more than ever, but they weren't able to compete. And I think it's interesting that you have these two riders come along who are, you know, obviously hyper, competitive elite level talents but also are people who can do it all and i think that cycling is an interesting moment right now where it's not a sport necessarily of specialists but a sport of people who uh, are and fans and enthusiasts who are interested in trying to do all things it's it's it, i feel like the sport uh, the discipline the activity is in an interesting recreational moment right now and i feel like these guys are well positioned to to capitalize on it you know something that you know we talked about what could hold this rivalry back or what could propel it forward something i always think about with cycling which other sports don't necessarily have which is that one of the key components of cycling is held back from the viewer and from the reader and from the fan which is um the actual like power numbers and biological numbers that these people are generating and putting out. And we've had a lot of discussions in the cycling world about like, man, like imagine the increasing depth of fandom that releasing those numbers could have. I mean, yeah, there's the watching the sport and the strategy and the whatever, but you know, being able to see like live data about what the wattages these guys are putting out, I think would be so cool. I mean, the teams don't want to, and the riders obviously don't want to release that information because that is it. Like that's the, that's like the blueprint to them as a rider, you know, and you can extrapolate up for that and say, oh, well, you know, here's how to beat Wout Van Aert. You have to hold 490 watts for uh, two hours on end and then, yeah, and then go practice that and then he'll get dropped. And so like that's sort of the secret sauce that they're all kind of hiding away. But I wonder about stuff like data and analytics and statistics, if, you know, through the lens of this rivalry, if you knew that like, Wow, Vanderpool's a guy where his high-end cruising speed maybe isn't as good as Wout Van Aert's, but he has that explosive power spike. And Wout Van Aert doesn't have explosive a power spike, but like he has this other type of physiology that we can see through the numbers. And like if that could be something that would elevate it, or if it would just like whittle down the followers to the ultra nerdy um, who who love to look at numbers. Well, that's a good question. I think that actually, interestingly, like the explosion in virtual cycling and even like, you know, Peloton and things like that, I think people are getting a little bit more attuned to like kilojoules and power totally. outputs and things like that. I think that like that, those numbers mean more than they did half, you know, half decade ago, for sure, maybe even 11 months ago. But yeah, I, I, I don't know if you're going to get there with teams with releasing that kind of information you know, in sports like basketball and football, they're all wearing like biorhythmic, you know, uh, monitors right now. That information is not being shared. Um, you know, gambling houses really like that information too, which is not a non-concern in uh, sport these days uh, as they look for alternative revenue sources. Um, but I do think what you raise is 
something that becomes, I don't want to say like media responsibility, but I feel like it's sort of people are business. It's a job to sort of explain why they're different or how they're different and what to look out for when you're watching these folks race. And, 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 you know, look, cycling is a, um, is a high risk, low reward endeavor. Like if you're, really, really successful. You're winning five, six, 10, 12 races in a calendar, right? That's a great season. If you can put that kind of thing together, you're not doing it every day out, certainly not every single month of the calendar. Um, so every time you tune in, one of these guys is not necessarily going to win, but they still animate the race in interesting ways. And they still make the sport spectacular to watch on a regular basis. And I think that it starts to become incumbent on you know, the Freds and the Jasons and whomever else out there to kind of explain why it's interesting. I like that part of my job. Oh, yeah. And I think that it, it you know, it goes beyond sort of the, the tabloid style of the way you could cover it, which would be to like search for beef between the two, because like these two slap each other on the back when the other one wins. They've known each other since, since they were children. I was going to say, you know, the other thing that could elevate a rivalry is like legit beef or like hard feelings or, you know, sort of the early days of Magic and Bird when, they came in and they were like kind of – there was some animosity there. You know, they weren't like they, – they grew into friends, but they weren't like buddies. For sure. It would be interesting also like, you know, let's see where Vanderpool ends up on a team. You know, like like if he stays with his arrangement right now, which he seems to like because it gives him enormous latitude to pick the kind of calendar that he wants to do. And, you know, he's being well supported that way. But, you know, were he to go to, you know – traditional world tour team that is you know a big time rival of a Yumbo Visma would that change the dynamic and sort of goose things that, that could happen don't you think yeah I think so I mean well that gets into the difference in the economics between the two from what I know and the conversations I've had you know Wout Van Aert is a very traditional style rider where he is you know spot employed by the team the team has its main sponsor its other sponsors and like what the team wants him to do he can do from what I've understand from speaking to journalists People in the business, I'm, I'm not re reporting this, I am repeating it. Matthew Vanderpool's deal is a little different, whereas he's very much tied to Canyon Bicycles. And, you know, the team was built around him, like was formed for him. And Canyon is sort of his personal sponsor. And so where he goes, what he wants to do, Canyon will support him in that, whether it's, you know, hey, let go be on this pro continental tour team that we started or go race mountain bikes or go cyclocross so i i also wonder if well by the Aaron, way is not terribly different than what sagan has yeah you know? totally it's perfect perfect it's a very one-to-one -one of what sagan has and so it's like i wonder if maybe what von Aert sees something like that or maybe he likes the more traditional structure but says like you know i have ambitions or goals i'd like to do i'd, I'd well that was a big debate we had earlier this year was like is jumbo visma gonna match whoever the big dollar offer is to hire Wout. And they did. They hired him. Well, if we ha if this was an NBA podcast, Fred, we'd be sitting here saying like, wait, is Wout Kevin Durant? Totally. He's like on this like super team. You know, he's got like, you know, grand tour capable riders with him. Uh, and, you know, does he want his own deal? You know, like, does he just want to go off and prove it to himself that he can just do it on his own? You know, that's what we'd be talking about if this was uh, NBA Bellamy. I know, but like, Oh, the, the big difference there is that like, you know, someone like Kevin Durant, where he has his like weird Twitter gaps or he goes on a podcast and sort of bears all. I mean, he like, you, you know, he's this kind of tortured, emotional guy where he won championships, but didn't feel like it was right. And and wow. And, you know, they, they just have this sort of this very Belgian Dutch mentality, which is just like, 
oh yes you go train you go race hard it's great you know <laughs> like there's you don't get you don't get the sense that there's like sort of the the moody nba feel these days these guys feeling underappreciated sure, sure, sure. i know you like the sort of like you know the soap opera behind the action and i feel like in basketball actually the pendulum is a problem in the other direction which is that i think sometimes basketball gets so caught up in the sort of the rumors and the gossip and the sort of off the court narratives that they sort of forget the fascinating things that are happening on the court i what ultimately gets me excited about nba basketball is seeing kevin durant play i don't care so much about his tweets or what james harden did at night i care about seeing james harden have like a historic night last night against san antonio like those like the actual like on court magic is the thing i feel like that has to be the compass and same for cycling it's like yes like all the kinds of like little feuds and controversies and things like that help goose it. And if sports are smart, they know how to manipulate it a little bit to like make controversies all the time. Like I always think with NFL football, for example, that, you know, they know that they have these issues with officiating and controversies about, you know, instant replay and stuff, but they also are like a little low level agitation at all times is good for the goose. Like it's good to keep people talking about it. Um, cycling's issues are, I feel like structural and organizationally. I, I listened to a podcast, uh, another podcast on the Vela news outside, uh, uh, network, uh, 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 Bobby and Yenzi. And they had my old friend, Joel Correa on who's now, you know, cycling super agent. And he made a very smart point about just, what would be the best thing for all of this is some sort of single ownership structure where like everything was kind of coming from one uh, voice or, 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 or one organization. And the, as long as it's kind of a little bit like the calendars, this cat herding situation where there's all kinds of players in it with competing interests, the, the message is going to get a little bit muddled. And that's what concerns me here. You know, like I felt like I felt this in tennis at a certain point that we were going to get to this place where tennis did not capitalize enough on the Federers and the Dolls and Serenas and Djokovic's, and they were going to look around and be like, we had four of the greatest all-time players, if not the greatest all-time players, and we did not milk this for all it was worth. Now, I kind of changed my tune on this now because you do see this next generation of players who are coming into the sport and how it continued to elevate the very reverential of the older guys. But like, I feel like cycling, the risk is to like just kind of like similar to a dynamic bike race, watch the race go up the road and not get in the mood and then miss it. And that's what is really important to have happen here that you have this on, this will be a rivalry. I think that we will be talking about 30 years from now. And if we don't take it for all it's worth and let these guys, you know, elevate the sport as much as they can, it's going to be looked back with regret. Uh, well, Jason Gay, sage words on uh, how cycling should capitalize on this rivalry. I will um, put you in touch with our friends at ASOUCI, Flanders Classics, and maybe you can put together like a PowerPoint for them uh, and do a Zoom call. Because it's 2021. All we do is Zoom calls all day. You know what my, my idea is? Let them ride one classic on a tandem. Okay? Why not? Would you take, <laughs> would you take them on a tandem versus the field? Even money. Yeah, I mean, it would depend on which classic, but yeah, like probably on like one of the flatter ones for sure. Um, or what they could start doing is letting like regular, like Cat Breeze enter the race on an e-bike, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, how long did Dave from accounting last in uh, Flanders on his e-bike? Oh, he lasted 25K. <laughs> 
And that's how fast they go. There are probably a few guys out on e-bikes anyway. Yeah, there is, right? Call, <laughs> call us UCI ASL Magic Classic. We have ideas. Uh, Jason Gay, as always, thank you so much for coming on the Velmi Podcast. Open door policy for you. You can come back whenever you'd like. Um, please come back and uh, educate us. All right. Say hi to all my friends. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.